Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our guest today, Luke Goodrich, who is a, a, one of the leading religious freedom attorneys in the country. He's with the Beckett Fund for Religious Freedom. He's argued several cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, he, he may be best, best known for representing Hobby Lobby in their case with the Supreme Court a few years ago, uh, and currently has several cases that are pending before the Supreme Court, either have been argued or will be argued here fairly soon. Uh, Luke is the author of a new book entitled Free to Believe, the battle over religious liberty in America. Uh, Luke, we're so delighted to have you come on with us. Uh, we so appreciate you writing the book It's it, for its clarity uh, that you bring to this issue, but also the, the depth of experience that you've had in on the front lines of arguing these religious freedom cases. Thanks so much for having me, Scott and Sean, and really excited to talk with you about religious freedom. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit about your background and how you got into representing cases like this that have to do with religious freedom. Yeah, I went to law school really just hoping to use whatever gifts and talents I had for the sake of justice and for the sake of the kingdom of God. And law school was a great experience. Uh, I was fortunate to, right after law school, I got to work for a judge uh, Michael McConnell, who's one of the leading religious freedom scholars in the country. And uh, after that, I went to the State Department and worked in the human trafficking office there. Uh, I did a, a period of time litigating at a big law firm. Uh, but then a position opened up at the Beckett Fund about 12 years ago. And Beckett is really the only law firm in the country that's dedicated exclusively to defending religious freedom for people of all faiths. And so when a spot opened up there, I, I jumped at it, and it's been a fantastic ride. Over the last decade, we've had a number of cases at the Supreme Court, and we're undefeated there. It's just been a real joy to use what I feel like are the gifts that God has given me for the sake of the kingdom of God on an important issue of justice. Well, we are so grateful for your voice and the courage you bring to this conversation. Give us some insight because you have really so much experience doing this, how the battle lines, for lack of a better term, have changed in terms of really debates about religious freedom over the past few years. Yeah, I think I think one of the main things that prompted me to want to write this book, I, I went to a gathering of Christian leaders a few years ago when the Supreme Court was on the verge of legalizing same-sex marriage. And these were university presidents, heads of denominations, uh, heads of major social service organizations. And the thing that was striking to me about that was, number one, the level of fear in the room, hmm. just knowing that a radical shift in the culture was about to take place, not knowing how that's going to affect religious organizations, and really not being very well prepared for what is coming down the line. So that was really what motivated me to want to write Free to Believe, because I'd been working in this field for about a decade and just felt like, hey, we as Christians, we need a deep, holistic understanding of what religious freedom is and where it comes from. Uh, we need to be awake to the threats at hand in our modern culture. I mean, what we're facing in America is nothing like what Christians face in the Middle East. Uh, but we are facing some things that we as Christians in America have never had to face before. So we need to understand what those threats are and how to prepare for them. 
And then, you know, lastly, we as Christians, we need to be able to enter into these conflicts, not from a place of fear, but from a place of joyful confidence in light of the gospel and really change our mindset around the issue of religious freedom. Now, Luke, one of the things that I think is most helpful about your book is you, you describe at the very beginning, you lay out three different approaches that you have found as to how Christians typically view religious freedom. Can you just briefly spell out what those three different approaches are and how your perspective on this issue is different? Yeah, so I think as Christians, we all come with certain kind of preconceived notions of religious freedom, presuppositions that we bring to the table. And as I've talked with Christians, I see them falling into a few camps. So, you know, one group of Christians, you ask them, you know, why does religious freedom matter? You know, I think these Christians, they tend to lean conservative politically, uh, and they would say religious freedom matters because it's a fundamental constitutional right. And religious freedom is essential for keeping the door open for the spread of the gospel. And America is a Judeo-Christian nation, and we need to preserve those fundamental freedoms that we've had from our Constitution. Uh, this group, I, I, you know, just loosely use the label pilgrims, and you know, there's there's some truth in that view, uh, but it tends to kind of reduce religious freedom down to a tool, a political or a legal tool for preserving a privileged place for Christianity in society. Uh, the other group. I, I call them the martyrs. They, they probably lean a bit more progressive politically and would tend to kind of react against that pilgrim view. And you ask them why religious freedom matters, they might say, yeah, why, don't, why does religious freedom matter? You, know, you see the, the church actually flourishes under persecution and the gospel spread because of persecution. Jesus said, you're blessed when you're persecuted. So why are we as a church so afraid of persecution in America? Maybe, maybe persecution would do us some good and wake us up. And at any rate, we don't really have any serious religious freedom problems in America. And go look at the Middle East. And then the, the third group I call the beginners. And these are Christians who are just you know, starting to wake up to the idea of religious freedom. Maybe they're a little tired of the sniping between the pilgrims and the martyrs. Uh, maybe they want to learn more, but they're not sure where to turn. And they just really haven't invested much thought or time in the issue of religious freedom. And I think, you know, the, the underlying uh, theme behind all three of these views is to kind of reduce or set religious freedom on the shelf as kind of a purely legal political issue. Maybe it's a tool for conservatives or it's lamented by progressives, uh, but it's not something we really need to think that deeply about. And, and I think all of those views have a failing and, a, and I'm trying to equip people to understand religious freedom at a deeper level. So is your perspective kind of a smorgasbord of those a little bit, or how do you land in comparison with those three positions? Yeah, so my, my argument is pretty simply stated. So religious freedom is not, as the pilgrims would have it, just a tool for preserving a privileged place for Christianity. And it's not, as the martyrs would have it, you know, just a luxury to be abandoned lightly. And it's not, as the beginners would have it, just kind of a interesting idea maybe we'll think about someday. Rather, my view is that religious freedom is a basic issue of biblical justice rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. I try to unpack that uh, from scripture, uh, also equip Christians with uh, non-biblical arguments they can use with a secular audience for why they should care about religious freedom, and tease out kind of how this view of religious freedom as a basic issue of biblical justice 
should inform how we approach the various conflicts we're facing today. Can you define for me and for our listeners what you mean by religious freedom or religious liberty? Yeah, so in in the book, I offer just a very simple working definition of religious freedom. It's where the government, uh, to the extent it possibly can, leaves religion as untouched by government power as possible. So it's basically the government is leaving religion to the private sphere and allowing religion to flourish or fail according to the zeal of its own adherence. So the government's not promoting, using its power to promote religion or force it on anybody, nor is the government using its power unnecessarily to restrict religion. It's trying to leave it alone as much as possible. Now, Luke, you say government leaving religion alone within within reasonable limits. So let me push back a little bit on that. Why why wouldn't, uh, say, non-discrimination toward LGBT community be a reasonable limit on religious freedom? How would you answer that? Yeah, so every right, every constitutional right, every human right has uh, some kind of limit. Uh, so the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment doesn't mean you can carry a loaded gun onto an airplane. Or the right of free speech doesn't mean you can deceive people through false advertising. Uh, So in the same way, the right of religious freedom also is subject to reasonable limits by the government. Typically, those limits arise from the government's duty to protect other rights. So if my religion tells me I should engage in child sacrifice, uh, obviously that is outside the boundaries of religious freedom because the government can limit that through its duty to protect life for vulnerable children. When it comes to LGBTQ discrimination, you know, that is one of the major uh, areas of conflict today. And I, you know, we could spend almost an, uh, an entire episode on that here. But you often get uh, opponents of religious freedom uh, and advocates of LGBTQ rights drawing an analogy to race discrimination and arguing that you know just like religious freedom shouldn't give you license to engage in race discrimination you know turn away uh, an african american from your lunch counter uh, so also religious freedom shouldn't be a license to turn away an lgbtq uh, individual or a couple from you know baking a cake for their wedding and so forth so i address this analogy at, at length in my book and point out why uh, the why the issue of race discrimination is fundamentally different from the issue of LGBTQ discrimination. And there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, maybe the biggest one is simply that our nation has a uniquely tragic history of race discrimination. We had hundreds of years of slavery based on race. We had a civil war based on race. We had government-imposed segregation based on race. And because of that, uh, our society uh, erected systematic and pervasive barriers for African Americans to full participation in the economic, social, and political life of the country. And so because of that history, because of those unique barriers, the government has been given powerful tools to dismantle racism, uh, tools that it hasn't been given for any other form of discrimination including discrimination based on sex, religion, age, marital status, or sexual sexual orientation. Uh, So you see this difference, the different treatment of race is reflected throughout our laws. Uh, Just one example, you know, all 50 states ban race discrimination in employment. 
And religious groups uh, typically are not exempt from that. So religious groups can be uh, punished by the government for engaging in race discrimination in employment. Uh, by contrast, there are only 23 states that ban uh, sexual orientation discrimination in employment. And every single one of those states has uh, religious exemptions to those laws, recognizing that religious groups have a legitimate interest in the sexual conduct of their employees. So the bottom line is, you know, it's kind of a long answer, but different kinds of discrimination warrant different legal treatment in the law. And sexual orientation discrimination is treated much more like sex or marital status discrimination where there are religious exemptions and it's not treated like race. And you know, even the Supreme Court has recognized this difference. Just one last example. You know, when the Supreme Court struck down bans on interracial marriage in 1967 in the Loving decision, the Supreme Court went out of, out of its way to say that those bans on interracial marriage were invidious relics of white supremacy and worthy of condemnation. Uh, by contrast, in 2015, when the Supreme Court recognized uh, same-sex marriage in the Obergefell case, it went out of its way to do just the opposite. It said, uh, traditional marriage laws are based on decent and honorable religious and philosophical premises that have long been held by, in good faith by reasonable and sincere people throughout the world, and that those beliefs are worthy of protection. So uh, the bottom line is, yes, religious freedom is subject to reasonable limits. And race discrimination is one example of that. But there are important historical, legal, and practical reasons why race is treated differently from sexual orientation and why our law has long recognized that religious groups have a legitimate interest in the sexual conduct of their uh, members and their employees. Yeah, Luke, that's really a helpful distinction between race and sexuality. And I think it's particularly helpful because we, we so frequently hear that this idea that re religious freedom is simply code for bigotry and immoral forms of discrimination. Uh, and that, that I think at the, you know, at the cultural level is, is I think one of the most significant challenges to the notion of religious freedom today as it practically, you know, outworks in you know, relationships in the broader culture. How, if you could give, if you could give us a soundbite answer to that charge that religious freedom is code for bigotry, what, what mm. would you say? I would say religious freedom is a protector of diversity. And the fact of the matter is our country is deeply divided over questions of God, over questions of morality and questions of human sexuality. And the question when it comes to religious freedom in all these debates is, you know, what is the government going to do? Like, given our deep societal disagreements on these fundamental issues, what should the government do? Should it pick one side of the debate over sexuality and crush everyone who disagrees? Uh, or should the government find a way to allow people with different views to live together in peace? And that latter uh, result is what religious freedom allows. And it's not license for bigotry. It's a protection for reasonable people to disagree on fundamental issues. And you know, when the government respects religious freedom uh, in the area of human sexuality, it allows LGBTQ couples to live according to, to their deeply held beliefs about marriage and sexuality. And it allows uh, Bible-believing Christians and people of other faiths to live according to their deeply held view 
about human sexuality. And so it, it really is a protection, fundamental protection for diversity in the midst of dis- difference. Luke, we want to get into a few particulars of, of different cases, but religious liberty makes sense to those who are religious. It's just kind of intuitive. But how would you make a case? I know you walk through this in the book, but for our listeners, how would you, if somebody there in conversation says religious freedom, why is that even important? How do you make a secular case, so to speak, for the value of religious liberty? Yes, I, I devote a, a chapter to this and offer, you know, I found three main arguments that can tend to carry some weight with secular audiences who are skeptical of scripture and skeptical of the value of religious freedom. First argument I make is that religious freedom benefits society. And there are a number of ways that it does so. Uh, one, you can tap into the language of the founding fathers. You know, they, the founding fathers were launching this unprecedented experiment in self-government. And they said, how can you know sinful people govern themselves? And the, their answer was, you need moral virtue. And for moral virtue, you need religion. And for religion, you need religious freedom. So uh, according to the founders, at least, you know, you couldn't have self-government unless you had religious freedom that allowed religion to flourish, that produced moral virtue. You also see how religion throughout our nation's history has benefited through society through schools, and hospitals, nursing homes, orphanages, soup kitchens, and on and on. You know, there is so much uh, at the level of civil society that is provided by religion. Uh, government simply can't do it all, and religion is essential in that respect. Another way religion benefits society is by uh, protecting dissent and diversity, which I touched on earlier, and reducing social conflict over fundamental issues. You know, religious freedom really is a key way that allows uh, a diverse culture to live together in peace. So those are ways re- religious freedom benefits society. A second major argument is that religious freedom offers a fundamental protection for all of our other rights. And the way it does so is you know, the, the starting premise of religious freedom is that there's something higher than the government that the government simply can't take away. And this concept is really the foundation for so many of our other rights, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom from unlawful search and seizure, freedom from cruel and unusual punishment. Religious freedom uh, places this uh, fundamental limit on government and shows that government, you know, there are certain areas the government simply can't intrude. Uh, So that's the way in which religious freedom serves as a bulwark for all of our other rights. And then third uh, major argument. So these first two kind of treat religious freedom as an instrumental good. Like we want religious freedom because it benefits society or we want religious freedom because it protects our other rights. Third argument, I think, is really the most important is that religious freedom is a good in and of itself because it's a fundamental human right rooted in who we are as human beings. And to just briefly sketch out that argument, it's a, it's a purely secular philosophical argument for religious freedom, but it goes like this. Number one, every human being uh, desires truth, goodness, and beauty. If, you, if a human being doesn't desire those things, you know, they have a d- diagnosable mental disorder. So we're all out there looking for truth, goodness, and beauty. We're also uh, born with a capacity to choose. We're given reason that allows us to choose among competing truths, goods, and beauties. And we also find we're all born born with this interior voice that urges us 
to choose good and reject evil. Uh, that interior voice is our conscience. And so we're, we're all out there. We're truth seekers. We're using our reason. Uh, we're, we're seeking to follow our conscience and embracing good and rejecting evil. And we find we're still not fully satisfied. We long for a transcendent truth, transcendent goodness, and transcendent beauty. Uh, in a word, we long for God. And every human being, you know, just see this as a sociological, anthropological fact. Every human being is born with a religious impulse, born with a thirst for transcendence. Uh, but that religious impulse can never be directed by coercion. It can only be directed by one's conscience. Uh, and we can only embrace the truth authentically if we embrace it freely. So when the government coerces human beings in matters of conscience, it's in a very real sense, going against our nature as human beings. And in that sense, it's violating a fundamental human right. So religious freedom is not just an instrument for benefiting society. It's rooted in who we are as human beings. And it's something the government has to respect. Thank you. Luke, that's very, very helpful just in making the case for people who, you know, who don't accept any kind of biblical case for religious freedom. Uh, and, and I think it's really helpful, I think, to, to show how protecting religious freedom is actually, instead of being more divisive, actually contributes to peace, peaceably resolving some of these conflicts about which we feel deeply and passionately in our, in our culture. You use the, what you call the abortion compromise as, as a model for how some of these religious freedom conflicts should be resolved. Can you spell out for us a little bit why you think that's a good example? Because most people think abortion is still one of the most divisive uh, conflicts in our culture today. Yeah, so I talk about the abortion example. Even before then, I talk about the, the Quaker lesson. And I think the Quaker lesson is so closely tied to the abortion lesson. So, you know, at the founding, one of the first, one of the first major religious freedom conflicts at the founding was over the Quakers who refused military service in the colonial militias. And they were brutally punished in the colonies. And it led to tremendous social upheaval. Uh, but over time, uh, the colonies realized they weren't getting anywhere by punishing the Quakers for refusing military service. And eventually the law was uh, bent and to accommodate the Quakers and to accommodate a conscientious objection to military service and recognize, hey, nobody should be forced to take human life and they should be allowed to step aside in accordance with their conscience. And that Quaker lesson has really informed the way our, our legal system approaches the issue of abortion today. So on the very same day that the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade, it also decided a case called Doe versus Bolton, and recognizing that religious individuals and religious organizations should never be forced to participate in an abortion. So we have this deeply divisive issue of abortion. You know, our government in my view, wrongly, has said that uh, individuals have a right to obtain an abortion and they can't be restricted by the government in that. But if we're going to have that as a law, it's a really good thing that the very next step was for the, for the law to say, hey, even though we're going to allow for abortion, we're going to draw a hard and fast line that nobody can be forced to participate in an abortion in violation of their conscience. Uh, religious individuals, religious doctors, religious hospitals, just like the Quakers, they have to have a right to step aside 
And you know, abortion has obviously remained a controversial issue, but at least when it comes to religious freedom in abortion, it's it's generally been fairly calm that you know, even though this is legalized, no religious portion, person can be compelled to participate in it in violation of conscience. So, well, Luke, what's the status of this conscience clause today? In because in, you know, I'm aware in some states that it's, it's explicitly being challenged, uh, not only with regard to abortion, but with participating in assisted suicide, and even forcing physicians to refer patients to places that will perform these practices, even though, even, even when they recuse themselves. And, and I know a lot of physicians who were, who view referring to those facilities as just as morally problematic as doing the procedure themselves. So can you update us on the status of that conscience clause today? Yeah. So this compromise on the issue of abortion, that religious people should be allowed to step aside in accordance with their conscience, is definitely under attack in a very real sense. And you see a number of key battlegrounds. So one is what we fought, uh, what I fought at the Beckett Fund in the contraception mandate on behalf of Hobby Lobby and the Little Sisters of the Poor. These were laws under Obamacare that required uh, religious individuals and organizations to use their health insurance plans to provide coverage for drugs that could cause an abortion. And uh, fortunately, we won that case on behalf of Hobby Lobby at the U.S. Supreme Court. We got a good ruling for the Little Sisters of the Poor. Uh, but you know, there are a number of states that have sued the Trump administration when that administration was accommodating the Little Sisters of the Poor and those like them. And so we're back for a third round and hopefully a final round in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, representing the Little Sisters of the Poor, and that case will be decided by the end of June. So that's the issue of like contraception and abortion mandates in health insurance. You also see a number of jurisdictions trying to impose speech restrictions on groups like crisis pregnancy centers, uh, like you mentioned, referring for abortions or uh, using signage that talks about abortions and helps people uh, know where they can get an abortion. And we also see the emerging issue of assisted suicide, and we're representing a religious hospital system right now that's being sued because it wouldn't allow physician-assisted suicide to take place on their premises. Uh, but in all these areas, you know, I, I kind of address these areas in the book and lay out the legal arguments on either side. And I, you know, I have a very strong hope. We've had a, a compromise on this issue uh, since at least 1973. And we have strong legal grounds for just you know, maintaining this fundamental principle that religious individuals and organizations have to be allowed to step aside in accordance with their conscience on matters of human life. I love that you point to the example in Daniel chapter one as kind of a model for scripturally appro approaching uh, religious freedom conflicts. Why is that story so important and what can we learn from it? Yeah, so I think a lot of people are most familiar with like Daniel in the lion's den or you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in these kind of spectacular conflicts where you know the government demands something, the religious person says no, and then God sends a miraculous rescue. But you know, that's not the only pattern throughout scripture. And I have a chapter with you know over a dozen of dozen religious freedom stories in scripture. And Daniel chapter one is one you know we don't focus on as much, but that's where you know, Daniel and his friends are brought to the 
uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's court, and they're given the king's food. And this is viewed as a, as a great benefit, uh, but the food is not kosher. And Daniel and his friends would be violating the Old Testament dietary laws if they ate the king's food. And so what did, what did they do? And did they engage in civil disobedience and provoke a big conflict and have a miraculous rescue? Uh, no, Daniel quietly uh, behind the scenes went to the steward that was assigned to them and said, hey, we, we really don't want to eat the king's food. Could we have vegetables instead? And the steward said, well, you know, you're going to endanger my head with the, the king when they see you looking more haggard than all the other youths. And Daniel said, well, try us, you know, test us, give us vegetables for a short period of time. And, you know, if, if it's really that bad, you can, we'll eat the king's food. But, you know, so, so he, he asked for a test. And the steward gave them vegetables, and they looked better than all the other youths, and they were given what was really, in legal terms, a religious accommodation, something that they negotiated for. And I think you know, there's, there's so many different approaches in Scripture to religious freedom conflicts, but this is one very important one today, you know, that we, can, we don't always have to provoke a religious freedom conflict or engage in these showy acts of civil disobedience, there's a, a very important place for negotiating behind the scenes, for uh, demonstrating, uh, you know, testing religious freedom and showing that religious freedom actually is a benefit to society uh, through the good works that it produces and using that uh, persuasive power to uh, preserve religious freedom in our culture today. Luke, one final question for you. Let me follow up on that just briefly, because I think there, there's a part of your book that I think could be misunderstood if it's if it's not properly explained. Uh, you point out, and I think uh, understandably so, that uh, people of faith, not just Christian faith, but generally across the board, people of faith can become angry and want pretty swift justice when they get concerned that their religious freedom is being stripped away from them. But you maintain that sort of this attitude toward winning these conflicts is the wrong way to approach the question. That that sounds a little odd coming from a religious freedom lawyer who's protecting their clients' rights to religious freedom. So tell, tell us, what do you mean by this statement? Uh, I think it has something to do with Daniel's approach to negotiation. Yeah. So every time I go into court, I want to win. Uh, that's what I that's what I work towards and what I owe to my clients. Uh, but you know, when I talk with Christians about the issue of religious freedom, and the question is, what do we do? Given the religious freedom challenges today, what do we do? I think a lot of Christians, their mind first goes to the to the question, how do we win? What steps can we take to make sure we win? cases, win elections, and preserve religious freedom for the years to come. Uh, but in the book, I point out that much of Scripture is written to Christians who were losing in religious freedom conflicts. The early church, which was suffering persecution. And we in America today, even though we're not suffering persecution like Christians are in the Middle East or like they did in the early church, we as Christians need to reclaim the message of Scripture to the persecuted church, which teaches us you know, not so much how do we win religious freedom conflicts, but what type of people are we called to be in the midst of religious freedom conflicts? And these are principles you know, we all know. Uh, we don't always think about them in the context of religious freedom, though. Principles like you know, expecting suffering. You know, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Second Timothy says. Uh, rejoicing in the midst of suffering. In Matthew 5, blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil uh, because of me. Rejoice and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. And so we, we expect suffering, rejoice when it comes. We fear God rather than fearing men. We strive for peace with all men. Uh, Hebrews 12, you know, strive for peace with everyone. We continue doing good even when it hurts. Uh, Luke 6, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. you know, these are all uh, commands of Scripture, and they need to be the starting place. When we as Christians find ourselves in the midst of a religious freedom conflict or see religious freedom being taken away, uh, starting from what type of people are we called to be in the midst of religious freedom conflicts, you know, mirroring the life of Christ. And you know, once we start there, you know, really transform our mindset, and there are so many stories in Scripture like the story of Daniel that illustrate this transformed mindset, you know, then we also do need and want to talk about you know, not only what does it mean to be innocent as doves, but how can we be shrewd as serpents? You know, what practical steps can we take as religious, you know, leaders of religious organizations or pastors or people in the pews, what are the practical steps we can take to preserve religious freedom for the generations to come? And I do, you know, address a whole section of the book to that, but it needs to flow from the mindset, you know, the mindset of seeking Christ-likeness in the midst of conflict. Luke, that that is such a helpful way to end this. And so I think just a very encouraging, but also realistic note, uh, uh, Sean and I are so grateful for your book and for your work. Uh, I want to recommend to our listeners your book, Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America. Not only is it biblically and theologically incredibly well-grounded, it's legally sophisticated. It comes out of your years of experience uh, in, in fighting these conflicts at the highest levels uh, of our United States Supreme Court. So, Luke, thanks so much for coming on with us for your book, for your work. Uh, our listeners, I know, will, will be committed to praying for you in the, you know, in the months and years to come as you continue to be on the front lines of these conflicts over religious freedom. And, and our prayer is that they could be resolved uh, in, a, in a way that's peaceable, in a way that doesn't require uh, going to court. Um, but yet, in, in, you know, instead of religious freedom being code for bigotry, it could be seen as protection for diversity in the years to come. So very, very grateful, Luke, for your book and for your work. And uh, thanks so much for coming on with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Luke Goodrich, and his book, Free to Believe, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and be sure to share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Everything.